Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. And for the next year, I'll be teaching entrepreneurship from Bin University in Hanoi, Vietnam. Today, please welcome Brian Kaderna, author of What Should I Do With My Money? Brian, welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, well, I really, really enjoyed your book. As I said, I loved all the research that you did in your book, and I thought it was terrific. Uh, I'm also keeping in mind and asking the audience to keep in mind that there are questions, that some questions um, you may not be able to answer because of compliance issues. So I hope that uh, everybody will understand that. Yep. Yeah, I'm sure we can handle that, you know, best we can. Wonderful. So, Brian, let's let's start off with why did you become a financial planner? Yeah, it's funny because like growing up, it's never something I thought I would become. But uh, you know, long story short, when I was in college, I was I was in business. You know, I had in high school, I had um, a football coach that uh, he taught an entrepreneurship and a marketing class, and they were the only business classes we had, and, and they really kind of struck a chord. Um, I knew that was more exciting to me than some of the other traditional subjects. So in college, you know, I, I went into business school, um, you know, not to get on a, a whole sidebar, but I ended up uh, interviewing with the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency. And they said, you know, we don't want a marketing or a general business. We want someone in finance or accounting. Um, so I immediately switched my major to finance. And then long story short, I ended up getting an internship with a uh, independent wealth management firm. And I just love the ability to to build your own practice and to help people and teach people every day. Uh, so that that's what just kind of you know helped me gravitate towards this industry. Uh, wonderful, and I'm glad that you did, uh, especially as I read the book. Why did you write this book, and why did you select this title? Yeah, so it was it began as a sequel to my first book, which was called Millennial Millionaire. Uh, that came out in 2016 and was, uh, you know, a bit of personal finance and also kind of memoir on being a financial advisor to young professionals. Um, and I, everyone was like, oh, we need a second book. We need an updated version. And I, I'm such a fan of economics. So that's really what I wanted to put more emphasis on is how economics kind of impacted every aspect of life. And so that was the genesis of the book. Um, and then we flushed it out with a lot of the current events, a lot of the kind of things going on in the world. And I, I was able to sign a contract with McGraw-Hill. They were awesome uh, to work with. And when we were going through ideas for the uh, the title, um, oh, sorry, I saw that there. When we were going through ideas for the title, uh, what should I do with my money just seemed so, such like a perfect fit. Uh, and even though it doesn't, maybe fit perfectly the content of the book, which is more kind of macro. Uh, it all comes back to that question everybody has of what to do with their money. And then it opens this can of worms into all these other issues in the world that we need to investigate. So that's kind of how it came about. Uh, how long did it take you to write that book? 
So it took about two years um, to, to come up with the full manuscript. And then I was working with um, a couple of literary agents and a couple of publishers that contacted me directly. Um, got a great offer from McGraw-Hill. They paired me up with a, a terrific um, editor uh, who also did Chicken Soup for the Soul, if you remember those books. Oh, and of course. I worked with her and we did a full edit for about another year. Um, so I'd say from Soup to Nuts, it was about a three-year project. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, uh, that's uh, you put a lot of effort into it, and, and you can tell by reading the book for sure. Um, what percentage of people do you think have a solid understanding about money and can manage their own money? Oh man, that's uh, I, I would answer that two ways. So, who have a solid understanding about money? Uh, I guess it's all on kind of how you're grading that. Everything's relative, but. As far as a full comprehensive understanding of money, I think that the percentage is on the lower side. Uh, but on the flip side, as far as those who could maybe manage their own money, I think that percentage can be higher. And I think where people go awry is when they're always trying to maybe find kind of the new fad or, or a new shortcut or or something like that. And they get away from the basics. And I think that that's sometimes like the biggest uh, issue folks run into is they make things more complicated than it needs to be. So in that, hence, you know, financial advisors, hence we have this whole industry. Um, but I think we need to do a better job as a society with financial literacy. Um, what's the profile of the person who, who can do it themselves or with minimal support? What does that person look like? So someone who, <laughs> like, truly do it on their own, I would say that, that's going to be someone that is your W-2 employee. Um, so they're, they're not an entrepreneur that has, you know, all different streams of income and maybe much more of a complex situation. And then if maybe if there's someone, for instance, like working with the government where they have a great benefits package, they've got their health care covered, maybe they're fortunate enough to be a part of a, a pension plan. Uh, things like that so that more of the the different questions that the average Joes have to say, hey, am I covered? Am I doing the right thing? A lot of that is taken care of for them just by virtue of going to work every day. Um, so I, I think that's one of the key things. Um, and then also, again, if they have the time to commit to studying and to just just like physical health, you know, kind of do like a, a checkup every now and again on their finances, at least a couple times a month. Uh, what is the profile of the person who needs a lot of support? And by the way, as I, as I mentioned to you, I'm living in Asia. I live in Hanoi, Vietnam. And one of the biggest things that's being pushed uh, in Vietnam and actually throughout Asia is financial literacy. Uh, there are tons of sites now and programs designed to teach people about financial literacy. So what's the profile of the person who really needs a lot of support? So I think the people who really need a lot of support are just those who have a more complex situation. Um, you know, definitely, you know, the folks that are contractors, business owners and the like that month to month, year to year, they maybe have a little more volatility in their income and their career. Uh, and also, if, if they don't have any background in finance, if they didn't go to business school, if they're not familiar with, you know, the, the ins and outs of kind of our whole financial structure, then they need help. You know, it doesn't, it's not worth them trying to learn everything on their own. That's where they'd probably be better served interviewing some advisors and then uh, finding someone that can really lift a lot of that burden for them.
Uh, what questions should you ask a financial planner to ascertain if they're good and right for you and your circumstances? Because there's like over, what, over 100,000 of you in the United States uh, doing this kind of work. And yeah, so what kind of questions do you ask them to make sure that they have, uh, that they're smart, that they have uh, your future, uh, that they're concerned about your future and not just making uh, money off of you? Yeah, and you have a lot of good questions here. Um, and that's, you know, one early on, I had met with um, probably my wealthiest client at that time or prospective client. And it was interesting when we like sat down, he he actually had a sheet with him where he, frankly, he conducted like an interview. It felt like a job interview. And I'd never had that happen to me before in my first couple of years in the business. Um, so I was kind of taken aback, but this was a gentleman that was, you know, very astute with his finances and his business. So that struck me. And, you know, he asked me a number of questions, really getting to know me, you know, why did I become a financial advisor, just like you had asked, um, you know, he said, can I, can I see what you do with your own money, which is something I always tell people, you know, if, just like as if you're going to go work with a, a personal trainer, you want to work with someone that really has their health at the forefront, you know, that's that's really fanatical about the right diet, the right exercises and so forth. So it's the same thing with us. You know, you want to work with an advisor that has a sound plan and is practicing what they're preaching. So I think understanding why they became an advisor, asking what they personally do, what their successes and failures in finance have been. Uh, and then furthermore, I would ask if they're a CFP, a certified financial planner. Um, that's like the, the highest credential or the gold standard in our industry. Uh, to ensure that this person has experience, they have ethics, they have uh, a very broad base of knowledge. And then another good thing I always recommend is to, to check out a FINRA broker check. And you can go on there and you can search an advisor and really find out almost like a, a background check of sorts. Have they ever been in trouble? Have they ever declared bankruptcy? Have they been in trouble with the law? Do they have any customer complaints? You know, where's their work history? You pretty much see their resume. So I think that's another great resource that everyone should be using. That's funny. I actually used that resource 10 years ago from my mother-in-law and found out that the two people that were trying to um, manage her money uh, were had been suspended in Pennsylvania and relocated to California. <laughs> you got to be careful. So uh, the resources that are out there, you just got to take a few moments to do some homework. According to a national poll conducted by CNBC, less than 1% of Americans use financial planners, and 35% they, uh, said they met a financial planner once. I've had one for 30 years. I still continue to do it, and, I, and I'm pretty knowledgeable about this. People have doctors, therapists, and mechanics. Why the hesitation of having someone manage their money? So I think there's probably a few answers to that question. Um, the first one that comes to mind, because I, I saw this even personally growing up with my family and my parents, they never heard of using a financial advisor or getting a stockbroker. They always just thought, oh, that's for rich people. That's for the ultra wealthy, you know, the millionaires out there. And while there's certainly a lot of us that cater to that, um, that's not a, a prerequisite. There's enough advisors out there um, for people of all walks of life, you know, to say, hey, I, I want to get some help here. So I think, number one, overcoming that stigma that I'm not ready. I don't my money doesn't warrant professional help. That's nonsense. I think 
anyone, even myself, I'll, I'll give someone the time of day and give them pointers, even if I can't help them right here and now, but give them a roadmap to get to where they need to be, um, to where maybe then my firm would be of assistance. So I think overcoming the stigma that you need to be the millionaire to get help, a, a lot of people are intimidated by that. And then the other thing too, is there's just so much noise out there in, in the, the media, in the news and, and so forth that, um, you know, I, I think people just get overwhelmed and then they think, you know, a financial advisor could be like a Bernie Madoff or some horror story that they heard of. Uh, while that does happen, I mean, in one rotten apple can kind of ruin the bunch. That's such a tiny fraction of the industry. Um, so I think it's just overcoming some of the negative stigmas that are there. And, uh, you know, then then I think people can say, hey, it's it's good. It's a good piece of advice, you know, that I can go get. You list the three building blocks of economics, and you write that understanding this is the only way to correctly manage your money. Can you explain that? Yeah, so in my book, you know, when we introduce economics, kind of how it all works, you know, these building blocks, um, I talk about production, consumption, and transfer of wealth. Very, very simple terms, but I think everyone needs to be familiar with them. And then that kind of leads right into, you know, supply and demand of, um, you know, just understanding if we ignore one of those three elements, then we're kind of being ignorant to the whole picture. You know, if we're producing things that the public, you know, does not want to consume, then we're wasting. If we're consuming things that aren't being produced enough, then we're going to run into shortages and we run into issues with supply and demand. And then ultimately, we're producing and consuming just to, to transfer wealth. That's what it all boils down to. And, uh, you know, there's no free lunch. So that's where we start to see, you know, is it is it a zero sum game or are there winners uh, on one side of the table versus the other? And so when I think we kind of just go back to basics and supply and demand and then uh, those tenets of production, consumption and transfer of wealth and just look at economics and, and simple, even microeconomics from that standpoint, I think it can be very helpful. What's the difference between price and cost? You talk about this in a book. What, what's, what are you talking about here? Yep. Yeah. So ultimately, the price is defined as, you know, what you're going to pay for something. And typically, we're talking in a monetary sense. You know, I'll pay you $5 for those five widgets. We know exactly what the price is. It's listed, it's negotiable and, and agreed upon. The cost is, is a deeper term where it comprises price, but it's also looking at, you know, what is the value? All right. So, for instance, if, you know, I'm, I'm a 10 year old boy and I want my parents to spend $200 on Xbox, um, that might be worth the world to me. You know, so the price is $200, but the cost is is worth it. Whereas, you know, if I was told, hey, here's, you know, an Xbox for 200 bucks. The price is the same, but I'd be like, I don't, I don't care at all. I don't want to play it. So the cost of $200 is way out of my league because it doesn't carry that value. So cost starts to get a lot deeper into um, some of the personal aspect, uh, uh, you know, as you carry a negotiation or a transaction. And I think that's something that's often overlooked is we don't give uh, enough credence to what someone else's value is. So we don't understand what the cost is on their side of the table. Um, and then that introduces lost opportunity costs and a whole bunch of other things too. 
you write uh, prices given and uncovering cost is uh, is what counts. Uh, what is that? Yeah, so that's that's kind of what I, I was just speaking of, and and to kind of elaborate on it, we know what the price is. You know, the price can just be listed. You know, for whatever the the price of my book is twenty five dollars. Okay, it, it is what it is. Whereas the cost is unique. You know, to someone that could say, "Hey, I'm really interested in that, and I'm going to derive you know a lifetime of education from reading it," then that cost is is nothing. That was the bargain of the century. But someone who's like, "Ah, I don't care," and they just throw it on a shelf to never be looked at again, then that was a that twenty five bucks was expensive. That was a big cost because they got nothing in return. And so it sounds very simplistic, but as we start to get into major macroeconomic issues. Um, I think that's where we need to kind of spend more time really diving under the hood and just not looking at price, not just X's and O's, but what are some of the the costs beyond that that require a little more investigation? Uh, can you talk about the acronym MICE and why this is important? Yeah, sure. So I know that's gotten a lot of um, attention from the intro in my book. And MICE, what that was is I actually read a book as a kid on the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. And they said that the way they teach their spies when they're training them to kind of go behind enemy lines is to find the mice. And that's money, ideology, compromise, and ego. And that every decision, every question, every negotiation out there, it's driven by these four motives, either money, ideology, compromise or ego. And so what I tried to do is, you know, all these hot button issues that I talk about in the book from entitlement reform, education, war, technology, environment, the green movement, you know, how does mice impact these? And I think that, you know, if we can really start to recognize the influence that has, especially when we're negotiating with someone or trying to understand someone, it just gives us four very good vantage points um, to see what are those triggers? You know, why why am I not getting what seems simple to them? Maybe I need to kind of step in their shoes and look through the lens of of mice. And uh, I think it's just a really good way to ask the right questions. You write about the importance of financial literacy. When I was in sixth grade, my dad taught me about the stock market and I started investing in eighth grade. What age should you start children learning about investing? That's a good question. So, you know, I, I don't think it's ever too young. Um, you know, obviously, if they're 10 years old, you want to kind of keep things simple, you know, dollars and cents. Uh, but I think it's something just to learn the value of a dollar is more important than anything. So if you're in middle school um, and you just are doing chores around the house and mom or dad is teaching, hey, you know, you just earned five bucks for doing the dishes. You can, you know, go buy a, a stick of gum pretty much for nowadays uh, with that five bucks, or maybe you take some of it, put it in your piggy bank. Some of it you could go spend on a new pack of baseball cards or, or whatever it might be. And then, uh, you know, kind of come up with a little bit of a budget. And then from there, I think a lot of the high school curriculums that I've seen, they have programs now where the kids actually get to do uh, investing with, like fake dollars where they build their own portfolio of their favorite stocks or funds. And then throughout their semester, they'll track those and see who's winning, who's doing better or worse. Um, and I think that's a great way just to get introduced to 
hey, this is a place where we can make money, we can build wealth, but we can also lose money. And, and understand the emotional aspect of that that up and down, I think is very valuable. Um, so I think, you know, before you're you're an adult, you ought to have a good understanding of this. You know, maybe an intro in middle school and then something more formal throughout high school. And, and then you want to kind of get your hands dirty. Um, you know, I don't want to go off on a, on a tangent, but my first investment, I had worked, you know, a lot of summer jobs, you know, lifeguarding and doing things like that. And so I opened up a brokerage account at 500 bucks and I was reading, researching, you know, using all these screeners to find the right stock. Uh, and then once I actually put my money in there and had skin in the game, um, you just have such a new education. And so I think that that's great for young people to do that sooner than later. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And, and that makes them uh, appreciate money more, but it also makes them more self-reliant as well. So it's a good thing to be. You wrote that uh, you wrote about entrepreneurs like Walt Disney and Henry Ford had a vision. In Walt Disney's case, it was about a swamp in Florida and what it could be in Henry Ford, what the car could actually do in changing America's landscape. What industries do you think people should be looking at to invest in and what type of criteria should they use for considering the right investments? So I'm not talking about individual stocks, but throughout your book, you really talk about industries and where they're going and so forth. So what's your thoughts on what people should be focusing on? Yes, yeah, so I think, you know, the, the key thing is you always want to look for innovation. You know, the, the world's always changing and we have to be willing to keep up with it. Uh, and there's no better place to do that than through investing. You know, everything costs money. You know, that that's kind of the the whole point I, I wrote this book is that money is influencing everything, whether you like it or not. So that's where in, investing can kind of help you be a part of this big game. And uh, wherever there's innovation it is, I think, where there's going to be future, there's going to be success. And then that's where wealth can get built. Uh, you know, we saw it with those things, whether it was Disney or like you mentioned, the the car when Henry Ford did that. So nowadays, I mean, anything in, in technology, you just see from, you know, the dot com boom, you know, up to today. when Now we're having like the AI boom almost. You know, these are things that are changing the way the game is played. And there's there's a lot of opportunity for investors to be beneficiaries of that. Um, it just as like, you know, we talk a lot now about going green and, and you're seeing, you know, things with, with the electric vehicles and and uh, clean energy and things like that. This stuff is it's a trillion dollar industry. Um, so you can participate in it as an investor. And then maybe to kind of, you know, um, you know, piggyback on that thought of innovation. I think it's always worthwhile communicating with the youth. And seeing what they're into, because that gives you a glimpse into the future. And we saw that, you know, with social media, with with Facebook and then Instagram. And now you're seeing it with Snapchat and TikTok. And, you know, what are the ways that the youth like to communicate and digest information and then find ways to kind of elaborate on that? Uh, and I think those are all just different things to kind of keep your finger on the pulse of what's growing. Uh, what's in a lot of them will kind of fizzle away and then some of them will stay and, and get huge and become the Amazons and the Apples. And so that's where you just want to kind of stay in the know. And um, those will be some kind of guidelines for investing too. In the section book about entitlements, you explain what they are. Uh, please tell us 
And are these entitlement programs you think are holding America back from improving the average person's financial status? Yeah, so that's um, one of the kind of the opening earlier parts of the book is talking about entitlements. You know, at least here in America, that's such a huge uh, part of our economy. That That's a part of the fabric of our country. And the biggest ones, you know, being Social Security and then Medicare, Medicaid. All right. They're just gigantic systems. And any politician, you know, hoping to kind of reform them is recognizing, yeah, that's very important. But also they're kind of playing with fire. You know, this is these are, are the bedrocks of our economy that millions of Americans depend on and rely on. Um, so when you talk about, you know, cutting benefits or reducing them or then on the flip side, increasing taxes and things like that, they're always touchy subjects. Um, so I think that I don't want to say they're holding back America, but they are huge, huge costs. A lot of it is borne by debt, which is never a good thing. And I think we need to have some hard conversations of it's just a matter of inflows and outflows. So if we don't want to you know, jack taxes through the roof, well, then we got to have a conversation of how are we going to corral these benefits so that they're not so costly. Uh, so they're a strength of America, but they're also a, a weakness in a sense that we can't we got to get control of it. And unfortunately, we've been turning a blind eye, in my opinion, for far too long. Uh, should the government raise the age when you can tap Social Security from 67 to 70? And what would that mean to most people's financial planning? Uh, so my own personal opinion by Brian Kaderna, I think, yes, you know, the normal retirement age definitely needs to go up. Um, you know, you think about it when Social Security was really coming into existence in the 1940s, the normal retirement age was 65. All right. And in, at that time, if you look at life expectancy, it really wasn't much further than that. So it was kind of like Social Security was helping like in these niche scenarios. And when it was, it was only for maybe a few years, typically. But now, you know, so many decades later here in 2023, all we've done is go from 65 to 67. But we have way more Americans that are retiring and they're not just living until they're 68. You know, I, I think most of us probably know someone that made it to their 90s or even to 100. Uh, and, and so now we're even talking about trying to shorten our career, even amidst these longer life expectancies. So again, going back to inflows and outflows, I think we need to keep up with, with population dynamics. We need to keep up with the demographic of our country, which we've more or less been ignoring. Um, so I think that is a simple one that, you know, we should be indexing it for life expectancy, which we've done to get from 65 to 67. Um, but it's not much. And that change was made long, long ago. Uh, and we haven't done anything since. Yeah, I, I'm amazed in France how they're still fighting um, each leader of the government, whereas Macron or any of the past ones, that they refuse to increase the age of retirement there. The math just doesn't add up, and we we have the same problem with the math not adding up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's. I mean, it, it's really simple when you think about it. But right now, I mean, we have kind of a trend, uh, what we call delayed onset adulthood, um, where people are they're not just turning eighteen and going straight into the workforce. They're going to college, then they're doing an internship, then they're going into grad school, and. And they're, they're dragging this out a little bit further. And now all of a sudden they're 26 and they're still living at home with their parents and they're not, you know, fully into their careers yet. 
And then on the back end, you know, they're, they're talking about wanting to the fire movement and trying to retire early. And so when we just condense that career so much and then say we could be in retirement just as long as we were working. I mean, it's kind of simple when you think about it, you, you do the math and it's like, all right, you got to put way more into the system or we got to slow down how much the system's grown. Um, there's a comment here. Uh, Paul Krugman, who is a well-known uh, economist, believes that raising the social security age discriminates against those with lower incomes as there are uh, health uh, disparities Is because the, uh, the wealthy are living longer. Do, do you believe that? Do you follow that? Uh, I don't know if I totally agree with that. Uh, you know, if you look at kind of the, the wealth replacement ratios, because there are caps on how much you fund Social Security, you know, each year, um, that I think when you get into the much wealthier space, the replacement ratio just gets smaller and smaller of the amount of their, their income that was replaced. Um, so I could see that if, if maybe what his theory is, is that if you don't make as much, you don't live as long. Um, but I think that's kind of a, a symptom of a lot of other issues um, rather than just to kind of look at Social Security, uh, you know, really affecting that so much. Very interesting in Asia. I've lost 14 pounds since I moved here six months ago. And there's no such thing as processed foods. Everything is fresh every day uh, <laughs> because I do the same exercise I do at home, back in the States. But yet I've lost. Uh, 14 pounds. I think maybe America would be healthier if we uh, weren't eating so much processed foods, which you read about every day on, on doesn't matter what site you pick uh, about that. So maybe there's something there that we should be thinking about. Uh, I'm 62 when I'm entering the workforce uh, from college in 1982, which I just can't even believe. There was a push by corporations to end defined benefit plans so they didn't have to secure uh, pensions. Was this good for the country and world to essentially jettison this form of retirement savings and go with the 401k? Or would it make uh, would it make any sense to go back to defined benefit plan systems? So it's it's I think in the way I kind of position that even in my book is the defined benefit system is almost a microcosm of Social Security. You know, it was smaller, uh, almost individual experiments of trying to generate you know, lifetime income for these retirees. And so just like you see all this strain on the social security system, that happened already to define benefit pension plans. And that's why you saw so many private corporations said, we just can't afford this anymore. Like we cannot hang up, you know, our business because we're paying our retired workers and that's what's going to bankrupt us. So that's where they said, all right, we're going to kind of uh, take this this burden or responsibility off ourselves and go into the defined contribution plans. And, and I often talk with clients about this all the time. Those ones that are in the older pension systems or grandfathered in there, it's like they have a, a golden ticket. They realize how lucky, how fortunate they are to be able to retire and have you know maybe two thirds of their income uh, be continued indefinitely. They recognize how cool that is. Whereas if I just have a, a balance in the bank or the stock market, it's a lot of pressure on myself to be able to replicate that. Uh, so it's um, it's one of those things. Of course, we would love to have it, but we can't be ignorant of the cost. And the cost has to be borne by somebody. So either it's going to be a much higher cost to the company for doing business that takes away from other things, 
or they're going to have to ask those employees to make bigger pension contributions, uh, which we've seen with a lot of you know government employees as well, where their share has gone up. So I, I, in my opinion, I think it should almost be something that if it is available, it's optional um, you know, to the employee where they can say, hey, I'll retain more of the money myself. I'll invest it myself. I'll do it my own way. Or they can opt into maybe the company or the pension plan and say, you know what? I'll pay more into it if you guys can take that burden off my shoulders. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a great idea. But just like we're talking about, you know, do we have to extend the age for Social Security? Those are the sort of things that the existing pensions, what are the few that are left, they're contending with those same issues of, you know, there's only so much to go around. So what do we do? I think uh, it bothers people that um, when I was in my 20s and the 80s, uh, the average CEO made 60 times the worker, but now it's between 300 and 3,000 times the worker. So now they f- people feel like, yeah, the company could afford to give us these. If you're paying that much to leadership, why mm-hmm. can't uh, we get more of that money? So I think there's the um, leadership has to justify why they're uh, – their income is so much greater. I mean, I can't imagine somebody's worth 300 people or 3,000 yeah. people. So maybe there's a different way of doing it that comes out to this, uh, comes to the same um, resting area. Yeah, it, it could be. And, and I think there has been a lot of, um, you know, you look at probably the past 15, 20 years now, there has been a lot of heat on the big CEOs, you know, the, these Wall Street bonuses that you used to be seeing of, you know, just these gigantic stock options and things that they were getting. Um, so I, I think you're seeing a lot of pushback on that, to your point, um, which is a good thing. You know, we, we want things to be fair. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, I think that that can there's there's an argument to be made there. But fixing entire pension systems is, is a tall task. That's a very heavy lift. And it's a long term one. So it would require commitment from you know executives or the board of directors to say hey this is something we're doing that's not just going to affect us this year and next year this is something that can affect us the next 30 or 40 years and to try and be able to plan with that that very long mindset um i think is something everyone has to get on board with if they really want to make it solvent um i believe you wrote that overpopulation of the world was much to do about nothing and i'm putting in quotes and and i might have misunderstood this uh why doesn't that concern you and how can investors take advantage of population growth or fear of the growth yeah well it does concern me uh without a doubt and and that's like in the book the i believe the way i positioned it was um just posing the question is it much ado about nothing uh cuz i was talking about a point on how um, birth rates have changed dramatically over time, um, especially here in America. Uh, you know, I think of my grandparents, you know, they're one of seven, and I think one of eight. Uh, and nowadays, you know, a lot of families, maybe they have two children, or, or they're having children way later in life, and they're having one. Um, so it's, it's a, a kind of a different dynamic now. Um, so I think overpopulation is, is a real issue that everybody's got to contend with. You know, the, the earth isn't growing at all, and, and there's more and more of us. If you ever just Google a chart on population growth and you see it steady for thousands of years and then spike straight up, um, you know, that's a reality that, that people have to deal with. And so the question is, it, is it a big deal or is it not? 
<clears throat> what I was mentioning is it's something that's just going to equal itself out just because we're having less kids now. Um, but along that path, as you're seeing in Japan and stuff, there's a lot to deal with of like, all right, now the smaller group of young professionals maybe has to take care of a much larger group of their elders. Um, so I think that there's there's a different ways to look at it, but it is a little bit scary. Um, and, and I think that's why you're having all these problems, like you said, of processed food and plastics and everything else that we could get into um, are a lot of symptoms of how do we kind of, you know, take care of more people on a cheaper way. And uh, oftentimes the environment suffers for that. I've traveled to five countries since I've been here in Asia. It's very, very rare. Like you could go a few days without ever seeing a heavy set person. So mm -hmm. it's amazing. Like where it's just the reverse uh, in the United States. And they're just starting to have more gyms here. But uh, a lot of people don't work out like we work out in the States. So if we combine better health um, regimen with the fact that we do like to work out, it could mm -hmm. be a, a wholly different circumstance and actually save the country a lot of money and, and medical bills. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> you write about how young people like, uh, like uh, to use robo-investors. When does a robo-investor, and explain what that is as well, when does a robo-investor make sense and what role will AI play in people managing their money? Yep. So I think, you know, robo advisors, robo investors, um, there's something relatively new. I think they're they're here to stay, um, but maybe for kind of like a smaller subset of the population. They're never going to I think the shortcoming of of AI and robo advisors, I often say, is they can give you the answer, but they can't give you the question. And that's something, again, going early on when I, you know, I was just getting started in the business. I had another client say to me, you know, Brian, uh, I got a decent amount of money. She was very good at what she did, but she's like, I don't really get involved in the day-to-day -day finance. It's just, it bores me. I don't get it. I don't care for it. And she said, I want you to tell me what are the questions I should be asking? And I always remembered that because I was like, huh. And I was like, well, you know, these are the things that you want to consider, you know, and, and we started to go down, you know, the, the different opportunities and threats to her money. And that's something that I think will be tricky for a robo advisor to to kind of get into more of the intricacies of one person versus another person or one business versus another business where they can be good is if they're given set instructions. Um, hey, I want to invest this amount of money. This is my exact time horizon. This is the risk tolerance I know I can deal with. If they're giving guardrails, then just like you see these target date retirement funds and some kind of set it and forget it type approaches. That's where robo investing can perhaps satisfy that need and circumvent the advisor or the do it yourself approach. Uh, but it's a tool. And I think that's what's most important, just as AI is. AI can help us in a ton of different things, but it's a tool. You know, you could give me a hammer. Yeah, I can start building things, but I'm not going to build your house just because you gave me a hammer. I, I think that, you know, technology is kind of similar to that. I think people love it when the market's going up. And when the market uh, has a reversal, then they need to talk to a professional who can help guide them through it. Everything looks great when the market's going up, right? I mean, that's when people feel like they can manage their own money and throw yeah. a dart at a dartboard and, and hit it right. Uh, yeah, it's a much more tied. 
And um, yeah, I mean, who are you gonna you gonna yell at a robot when the market goes haywire? <laughs> it's you know, there's yeah. that's where it can or, get complicated. Or talk you out of selling your Apple stock um, just because it dropped uh, by three percent or five percent. I mean, you're you're the voice of reason, uh, letting them know over years what all that means. Uh, mm -hmm. In the book, you address the defense industry and the war on terror. We see that keeping up with Ukraine's defense needs, uh, even in partnership with other Western European countries, is turning to be challenging. What should investors be thinking about when lock, locking, uh, looking at the defense industry and how are portfolios affected by the Chinese military buildup, both in terms of non-defense investments and the need to keep improving on our own weaponry in the U.S. and our European partners? Yes, that's a big question there. Um, I, I would start with, uh, obviously, you're seeing more and more, uh, you know, and hopefully this doesn't continue uh, much, much further, but these proxy wars that are coming about, um, you know, that's that's been the playbook for so many uh, countries, you know, for a while now, uh, that especially big countries that say, hey, we can't just outright say something. We don't want things to be black and white. So we'll have these little proxy battles that we're doing. And along the way, unfortunately, a lot of innocent people get hurt. And there's a huge financial cost to all of that as well. Um, so I think that's kind of the almost like the the landscape that we're dealing with right now. And then the question begs, you know, how long do we want to support something? We know how much money we're pouring into Ukraine right now and have. And I think if you ask somebody, like, what's the end result? You know, what do you want to see? That's a very hard question to answer. And along the way, you know, you're you're pouring billions of dollars of taxpayer money into this from from a variety of countries, but probably most notably here in the U.S. Um, so I think you got to kind of think about that when it, there's always that juxtaposition of you know, do we put money abroad, or do we spend that on our schools, our cities, our, our streets and roads here at home? Um, everybody's kind of clamoring for a finite amount of assets. And that ultimately goes back to the crux of what economics is. So, you know, I, I looked at a recent uh, stat I just want to share that was from the Office of the Management and Budget. And they said that uh, in 2022, the U.S. spent $766 billion on defense, which amounted to 12% of federal spending. And the, the biggest categories of that were uh, operations, which is training, planning, healthcare is a huge one, and then the equipment. And then the second is military personnel pay and retirement benefits. Um, so the, there's a lot that kind of goes into feeding this huge machine we have, um, you know, that's a very, very big cost. And then we obviously have to keep up with it. You're seeing all that China's doing, um, but China's got a lot of issues of its own. Uh, Ed Yardini is a you know, pretty well-known economist. He just said the other day that China is in a property-led and fertility-led depression an actual depression right now. So if they want to spend billions of dollars, you know, building a new aircraft carrier, um, you know, it, there's only so long that you can keep these things going before your economy is going kind of into the gutter. So there's there's so many different things to kind of uh, balance here. Um, but I think as investors, you want to see that that big picture. It's not just, oh, let me just invest in defense stocks. It's let me see kind of all the other little ripple effects to this. And then technology, of course, is at the forefront of so much. So I think that's where um, you can always kind of be looking into, again, going to innovation and things like I mentioned earlier. 
Uh, question from the audience. It seems investors are less likely to invest in bricks and, and water uh, businesses because of all the hysteria over AI businesses and anything to do with geek economy. Very unlikely there'll be another Facebook or Uber or Airbnb. But if, if uh, one is looking for uh, investment in a traditional business, how can interest in investors be generated? Um, I think, you know, just like any, any um, you know, entrepreneur needs to be able to make their case to potential investors or to their bank, you know, when they draw up their business plan, they need to be able to show and prove value. And, and that can come in a billion different ways, whether it's, you know, a, a you know, building full of rental properties, or if it's, you know, some, you know, manufacturing a new widget. It just needs to be able to fulfill a need. And I think that's kind of the biggest thing. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, if we're talking about kind of all the stuff since the pandemic that we're not just, you know, going into the office every day of the week and we're working remotely and such, it has changed the landscape. Um, but I think, you know, you mentioned there may not be another Facebook or Uber or something. There's always going to be a new uh, a, a new business that's better than the last one. And then there's going to be a new industry that, that gets created. And so it's just trying to kind of see what that could be. How do you advise your clients to think about economic sanctions and cybersecurity threats when mapping out an investment strategy? So that's, um, I mean, I, I would say regarding cybersecurity, I mean, there's a lot of investment potential in all of this, of course. Um, I don't know if this is really the answer you're looking for, but we're just always kind of teaching people to and reminding them to be smart with what they're doing. Uh, you know, as things as far as kind of protecting their identity and using two-factor authentication and changing their passwords, a lot of the basics um, that a lot of people kind of get caught up on. Uh, so there's a ton that we do in our back office does to protect, you know, client data and, and things like that. Um, so that's maybe on some of kind of the, the cybersecurity issues. Uh, and then as far as like economic sanctions and things like that, um, you know, that's just kind of keeping your finger on the pulse, I guess, of what's going on in the world. And again, what are those effects, you know, five steps down the road that having a sanction is going to be? You know, of course, uh, our countries need to do what's in their best interest to, to create leverage and to have some control. Um, but then, you know, whether it be oil or usually it's involving some commodity um, or steel from China, uh, then again, there's a, a ripple effect. Um, fortunately, you know, our economy is pretty, uh, you know, light on their feet and quick to adapt. And so there might be that initial shock based on whatever that sanction is. Um, but traditionally, then we kind of find a way to adapt and, and then get back to kind of, uh, you know, cruise control. Um, we have a question from the audience. Um, what bucket area, U.S. stock market, bond market, international investment, real estate, and in what percentage, adding up to 100%, would you invest for a person who is 67 with $2 million to invest? Yep. So this uh, this is one of the ones kind of that I got to be just careful of for compliance as far as giving any recommendation. Understood. Um, what I would lead in with, the footnote I would kind of put there is uh, the the time horizon we're talking about with the money, um, what their their budget's like, you know, how much of that money they're going to want to be accessing and when, uh, and then also their risk tolerance. Are, are they someone that can say, hey, I'll put my money there and I'm not going to look at it 
uh, or are they going to put their money there and every morning they wake up, they're going to look at the value. Uh, and I think some of those just kind of habits are going to dictate uh, what can make it a comfortable situation for them. Um, you know, and, and it, you know, with the bond market, a lot of people, they used to always say, hey, we'll put we'll do this risk tolerance questionnaire one to 10. One's very conservative, 10, very aggressive. OK, you come back a, a three. You say, you know, I, I hate to lose money. I want to be super conservative. And so knee jerk reaction going back to like the robo advisors and stuff. It's say, okay, if you're a three, then we'll do a 30-70 portfolio. You know, we'll have 30% in equities, 70% in fixed income. Well, guess how fixed income fared, you know, in 2022 when rates went through the roof. It had its worst year on record. And so I think that's where you need to kind of dive under the hood a little bit. And, you know, I think that was an eye-opener for a lot of folks that said, what's so fixed about my fixed income when it just went down 12% in a year? I thought it wasn't going to lose money for me. Uh, so that's where as you start to kind of break that pie down, I would just put, again, some basic cliff notes. Diversification is key. Um, kind of know what it is that you're owning and know your time horizon. I often say if you're investing for less than three years, you're not investing, you're just gambling. Uh, because we don't know what's going to happen in the world in that that small one cycle of three years. And so if if we're not in control of our money and we need to liquidate some of that, then it's a roll of the dice if it's a good time or a bad time. And so what I'll do, I'll kind of elaborate on that is usually we'll bucket our money for retirees where we'll have what I like to call um, the go-go years, the slow-go years, and then the no-go years. And so if I got this big pie of money, we'll kind of break it off into sections of this is what we're going to use over the next few years as you want to travel the world then this is maybe five, 10-year money for when we kind of slow down. And, and then we have some down-the-road money, um, you know, for whether it be estate planning or long-term care. Um, a question from the audience. Is Brian's book mainly written for people who want to work and invest in the U.S., or does it cover investment opportunities worldwide? It's a great question. So it is written for an international audience. Um, that's the, the first answer. The second to that is it's not just a, a, a here like a how-to book of here's step one, step two, step three, put your money here, no matter where you are. It's more a book about thinking, about understanding the interplay of everything going on in the global economy and being able to distill that down to your own personal situation and then be in the know so that now you can make smart financial decisions for yourself, your family, or your business, no matter where you live. And, and so that's where I think it gives a, a full economic literacy. And then it, the last chapter you'll see there is where we get more into the personal finance. Once we have an understanding of the macro, then we really get into the micro. Uh, I'm living in Hanoi, Vietnam, as I mentioned in the beginning, teaching an Ivy League level school uh, to mostly an Asian population. My students tell me they no longer look at the American dream as viable and have major concerns about the gun violence. They're looking at Australia and less violent countries in Europe and Canada as places to live and work. Does that concern you as an investment advisor? And what do you tell your clients? Yeah, so it does. I mean, like if if all those things were true, like, you know, if, if everyone had a consensus, let's say that, you know, something's very good or something's very bad, um, then that emotion obviously can sway the stock market. 
um, just like it could for any business. And, and that's like they often say, you know, once something bad leaks about a business, the damage is done. And we've seen how many times that then a week or two weeks later, they say, oh, I'm sorry, that that reporting was inaccurate or the person that made an accusation, they took that back. It's like, well, it doesn't matter that that company already got hammered in the public eye. Uh, I think those are the things that you need to be very aware of, kind of the PR, um, like we're seeing right now with, with Israel and Hamas is so important of, you know, what is the public perception of a business or of a nation and so forth? Now, as far as America, I think one thing I would say here in the States is, um, yeah, things are changing. There's good things. There's bad things. We've gotten addicted to a media that loves the bad stuff. All right. You could turn on the news every night and it's enough to you know, give you nightmares, literally. Um, I, you know, I don't think that that's the accurate representation of our full 330 million people here. You know, we're still the most immigrated to country in the world by a huge margin. Um, you know, and if you look at the top 10 companies in the world, for instance, guess what? Nine out of the 10 are right here in America. Um, so I think you have things like that that will continue to be attractors that work um, for America, just as an example. Uh, and, and those are the things you want to kind of keep in mind. You want to invest where people are going, where money is going. You don't want to go to the party where there's nobody there. Uh, so I think you want to look at your investment kind of that way, too. Uh, you have a section of the book on religion. Uh, what did the various religions say about earning and managing money? And is their advice good and practical in 2023? Uh, I would say, you know, by and large, yes. Um, you know, most, yeah, I'm Christian, full disclosure. Um, I've studied other religions and theologies as well. I don't know them as intimately. But by and large, you see they preach, you know, living a frugal lifestyle. Um, being charitable, you know, saving your money, not being, you know, crazy as far as kind of blowing your money or being irresponsible. Um, so much is about moderation. So you see a lot of these commonalities, and those are just classic teachings that that we would tell our kids. So I think in that respect, like, yeah, a lot of the major religions out there, they do provide a little bit of a good financial guideline of how to live a smart, balanced lifestyle in you know, kind of respect your earnings um, and work hard and keep that money. So, yeah, is it going to get into the nitty gritty of crypto? Of course not. But are they going to give you some good tenants to follow and practical habits? Yeah, I think they're still very valuable. Um, please talk about theological economics and that 22% of the world's 190 plus countries have an official religion. Why is this important to know, and how does that impact one's financial planning? Yeah, so this goes back, for instance, to um, you know when I talked about the opening of the book with mice, you know, money, ideology, compromise, and ego. I think this is where ideology kind of comes to the forefront of you know what is that person, that organization, or that government's north star you know what is it that really influences them or guides the rest of their thinking and for so many folks you know that's that's religion you know that might be at their core and so then when you take it to a national perspective you have a, a lot of countries that don't really have any religion they affiliate with you have some countries that say we're religiously free and, and that's their pledge is to be completely open and then you have some that are anchored in religion. And, and it's almost as if the religion is bigger than the country, that we're not 
pledging allegiance to our flag, we're pledging allegiance to our faith. And I, I think where that's most notable is uh, in, in Islam. All right. Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world um, by quite a large margin. And uh, there's actually 27 countries that their government is anchored in Islam, that it's in their constitution and that that's almost the governing power. Uh, so when you have that combined faith, one could make the argument of those 27 countries that they're not just saluting their flag or, or their their neighbors, but they're all together, those 27 countries uh, that have a common belief that supersedes all of that. And so I'm not saying that any of these are a good thing or a bad thing, but they shape the the playing field that we have to deal with. And you're seeing that play out right now, unfortunately, with Israel and Palestine. And, and you know, there's obviously a very big religious influence to all of that, of what's going on. Um, so it's it, it affects everything. It affects economics. It affects war. It affects, you know, geopolitical issues. And then that has a direct effect on the stock market. So our uh, last question here is, with the war between Hamas and Israel, uh, we're seeing, as you write about, socially conscious investing. What is that and how does that play a role in most people's investment strategy? Yeah, so I think socially conscious uh, investing is just um, a kind of a general term in which we're not just picking stocks or funds or investments based on their financial uh, value but we're taking into account some social aspect. Uh, it could have religious influence of, you know, we don't want to invest in companies that have anything to do with gambling or that have anything to do with alcohol or tobacco. Uh, it could be in things, I don't want to invest in any brown companies. I don't want to invest in oil. I want to invest in clean energy. All those different things kind of fall under that umbrella of social investing. Uh, as far as what role does it play in most people's investment strategy, I would say slim to none. Um, I think that for the, the majority of folks out there, they're not having that be their ideology. That's not their motivating factor. For a select few, it is. And there's others that might say, hey, if it's a toss up and I could pick one of two investments, maybe I'll go for the one that fits kind of my profile a little better. Um, but I think most folks out there, at least that I've seen, are still just trying to do the best they can with their money. And in the social aspect kind of maybe takes a little bit of a backseat to that. Uh, I think young people maybe are are a little more cognizant of that, at least from what I see. Um, but they're also not dealing with the kind of money that a lot of you know the other generations are dealing with. Um, so it's there, but I think it's more of a, a kind of a talking point than a pragmatic thing that's having a lot of influence. Uh, we do have time for one more question. Here's the question sure. uh, from the audience. What makes someone like Warren Buffett such a great investor? Is there any criteria for assessing who can be a great investor and be trusted with money? Yep. So uh, Warren Buffett has a lot of great quotes. Um, one of the ones I always like to share is it's not how your uh, investments behave. It's how you behave with your investments. And so I think, you know, why he was such a great investor, we'll say that was one thing. And then the other quote that I love that goes to why he's so great. He said, you want to be greedy when others are fearful and you want to be fearful when others are greedy. OK, so if you can take kind of those two tenets there of one, uh, you know, I'm going to have kind of the gut, the, the stomach to say, OK, when something looks like a huge discount and everyone's running from it, 
that's maybe when I'll consider, okay, it could be a buying opportunity. Now, also, he had a huge bankroll to do a lot of what he did uh, over all these years. Um, but I think it was that that mindset of being able to take some of the emotion out of play combined with a very long-term outlook. I think that's where you see great investors is where they're able to stay the course. They're able to stick to a plan and then follow that for decades um, versus the people who kind of jockey from horse to horse or whatever the new fad is. That's oftentimes where they're just kind of rolling dice without even meaning to. And, and then the results speak for themselves. Brian, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. I love the book. I love all the research you did. And I can tell why it took three years to write this book. <laughs> and uh, we look forward to the next book you might write as well. Yeah, thank you so much, Mark. I hope this was helpful. And everyone go check it out. Just called What Should I Do With My Money? Great. Have a great weekend, everyone. Take care. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.